0: This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Coming up in this week's episode, in the wake of the Burke Street attack, we speak with Dr Emily Corner from the ANU about the misinformation that often surrounds discussions about terrorism, radicalisation and mental health. And Jackie talks to Dr Isaac Kafir on the latest developments in the saga that is Brexit. But first, Maddie speaks with Michael Shoebridge about the implications of the U.S. decision to join Australia and PNG in redeveloping the naval base on Manus Island and the message that sends to China.
1: Michael, the U.S. Vice President, Mike Pence, announced at the recent APEC summit that um, the U.S. would be collaborating with um, PNG and Australia on a joint initiative at Lombrum Naval Base on Manus Island. I'm interested in getting your thoughts around some of the strategic possibilities for this sort of joint initiative.
2: Well, I suppose the initiative itself is a strategic possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. In fact, it's, it's something that was a vague possibility just a few months ago and now is an announced plan by three governments. Um, and I think the, the reason I think the initiative itself is strategic is because it's a strong statement of interest and presence in PNG and the broader South Pacific by the US and Australia.
1: What sort of message do you think this is going to be sending to China then? That's probably the big thing that lots of people are are wanting to hear about.
2: It's a bit like an anti-malarial. This is a preventative medicine that's Mm. being taken uh, to inoculate the South Pacific against expanding Chinese military presence in the future. And the more that we hear Australian government ministers and the prime minister say that this is not about china the more we know it is about it china is. Uh, so it's a preventative move uh, the lovely thing about this obviously is png is uh, is uh, is leading this and agreeing to it mm. uh, and it's being done in a three-way partnership it's not being done to png it's being done for and with png
1: yeah no that's a good point so you wrote in a in a blog piece recently you called this this approach assertive um, and you said that it would signal to China that their growing power is now facing broad trouble. So do you think that we haven't been uh, assertive enough in the past?
2: I do. I think we've been victims of gray zone diplomacy, uh, coercion and spreading incremental power. Okay. not as obvious as in the South China Sea you know new Islands have not been built on disputed reefs, but uh, Chinese presence through infrastructure and debt and the intent behind that to expand military presence, I think has become increasingly clear.
1: So also, in your piece, you wrote that the US and and its partners are really kind of taking initiative back, but that there's actually a lot more that needs to be done in order for such initiative to actually result in sustained momentum we've got this joint action this joint initiative, which is great, sending a you know a strong message to China, but what more needs to be done now?
2: well I think the economic and political initiatives are as important mm-hmm. as this uh, this one naval base yeah. so uh, step one, the naval-based development has to be done effectively and in a way that's supported by the Manus Island community because that will make it a sustainable thing. Yep. Um, and in fact, that needs to contrast with some of the other investments in the region from other providers. Uh, so that's got to be done well. But I think those other packages, that electrification and a spreading of the internet coverage across PNG and people, the public In Australia and probably in in the Pacific are probably saying, well, why wasn't this a good idea before now? Mm. They're right. It's been a good idea, but there hasn't been the will to do it. Those kinds of initiatives, beyond the strict security ones, are fundamental to having the South Pacific, PNG, Australia, the US, Japan, and other partners being a cohesive political entity, Mm. and cohesive political entities are required to counter... Uh, coercion, and assertive spreading of power. So that's the bigger thing even than the security measures in my view.
1: Coming back to something that you just mentioned then, why do you think there hasn't been political will to address the more economic and political issues
2: here? Well, I think it's called complacency. Uh, The South Pacific and PNG have been seen as um, eddying backwaters in in the world. Mm. Uh, They've been seen as a place where Australia and New Zealand have roles and responsibilities to help development and political maturing. Yeah. Um, But we haven't really worked in proper partnership with the peoples and the leadership of the Pacific Island states. Um, You can see that they know things we don't. Um, Mm -hmm. Listen to their leadership on climate change and what needs to be done and contrast it with our paralysed political debate. Yeah. So... Um, I think the good news is we've woken up and we need to stay awake and we need to work in partnership with the Pacific.
1: So you don't think we haven't woken up too late then?
2: Well, I think I'm worried it could be an Oliver Sacks moment. You know, his book, Awakenings, where there are people in long-term comas and he gave them a drug and (laughs) they woke up and they wandered around for a month or so and then the drug stopped working and they went back to sleep.
1: Okay, hopefully we will last longer than a month.
2: Well, this we need to stay awake, Yeah, but more importantly, we need to have a proper conversation and partnership with, with our Pacific Island neighbours.
1: Something that you also wrote in the piece which on the strategist that I found really interesting was that you said that Xi Jinping's language at APEC was very similar to sort of the language that he used in Davos in 2017, but you argued that people should be more concerned about what he didn't say, so the things that he didn't bring up at APEC. Um, can you elaborate on that a bit
2: for me? Yeah, I mean, my point was I think Chinese um, Communist Party diplomacy has a one-track record, and that is that it's about win-win development, it's about peaceful prosperity, joint development, respect for everybody, um, and the idea of rising prosperity. Mm-hmm. And it's a deeply economic narrative and uh, you would not think that there was a single political or strategic element of anything going on in the world. Yeah. And yet we can see that the Chinese military has seized and created artificial structures in the South China Sea. We can see that they keep testing the Japanese government's resolve around Japanese control of islands in the East China Sea. Yeah. Uh, we can see uh, that Sam Dastiari is no longer in the Australian Parliament because it looks like uh, there was some interference with him as a member of our Senate. So we can see these other actions by the Chinese state in the world, let alone cyber intrusions. Um, So we see all these things, and that clashes very badly with this language of win-win, peaceful development, and uh, recognising everybody's interests.
1: Mm. Uh,
2: I haven't even mentioned uh, Xinjiang.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, or yeah. Tibet,
2: or Taiwan, or state surveillance. So the problem is the narrative now doesn't match the actions we see.
1: Yeah, and, and it's more
2: you, you can't—they have not yet found a new narrative that actually helps explain their actions in the world.
1: Really interesting. So I guess my last question: Peter Jennings has also been writing on this new base in Manus Island. Um, and he says that the remarks from uh, VP Pence show that America is really prepared to invest more in Asia-Pacific security. But he comments that this is sort of, to put it politely, this that this is somewhat removed from the messages that we've been getting from Trump. Um, so would you agree with this?
2: I think there is a disconnect between yeah. the America first uh, rhetoric and decisions uh, of Donald Trump as mm-hmm. the US president. And the agenda laid out clearly now on two occasions, on the 4th of October in a speech at the Hudson Institute yes. and also his apex speech by Vice President Pence. Uh, Pence is laying out a much more thoughtful, broader agenda, strategic, economic and political. Mm-hmm. Um, but Donald Trump is representing a lot of Americans who love America first as an idea. Yeah. And there is an unresolved tension in American policy and action between those two things. So I I think that's what Peter's getting at. Yeah. Uh, To me, there's a much broader coalition of interests that includes um, Washington uh, policymakers and agencies, great chunks of Congress, uh, the US business community, Mm -hmm. and large chunks of the American public that's behind the agenda of Pence. Uh, However... Don't forget all those people that voted for Donald Trump and who will vote again. Yeah, but I, I think there is a uh, there's a burning need for American leadership to reconcile self-interest, national self-interest, with the power of, of the values agenda, because okay. I think an explanation for some of America's power in the world and appeal. Is, is around values, not just naked self-interest.
1: Thanks for chatting with me today, Michael. Good, really thanks. it.
0: Now, we'll hear from the ANU's Dr Emily Corner on the misinformation that often comes in the wake of terror attacks.
1: Thanks for joining me today, Emily. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it's absolutely no problem at all. You have done some absolutely fascinating research on the relationship between terrorism and mental health. If you really kind of had to boil it down to sort of a few key points, what do you see is the crux of this relationship? Like, in your opinion, do we sort of even fully understand it? In
3: short, no, we don't understand it. Um, the, the research has not developed enough for us to develop our understanding sufficiently. And there's a few reasons um, for that. One of them is the the sort of data that um, I've often used when conducting this research and the limitations surrounding getting how you get hold of the data. So a lot of the data I've used has been open source data, which has issues, but it is probably some of the best that you can get out there if you have a, like a, a good protocol for collecting the data. But the other thing is, for so many years, and we're talking a long time, you know, nearly 100 years, we've been trying to, well, researchers have been trying to understand the relationship between mental illness and violence in general, and they haven't ever come up with a coherent answer. Pretty much the answer that comes out is the relationship will be different for every single person. Absolutely. That depends on so many different factors. So the the immediate circumstances, the, the diagnosis, the symptoms at the time, the precipitating factors, there's there's so many different things that can interact. So many different variables that can interact in space and time that will affect an individual's decision to commit an act of violence. Um, a mental illness and tiny, small facets of mental illness will be just one one of these variables. I've been researching this for five years. I still haven't found a, a direct link. There is no direct link. The amount of lone actor cases that I've looked at, there has never been that there's a direct cause in one direction. Mm. Sometimes mental illness might push a person closer towards the point of radicalization. Sometimes it might actually pull them away from it. Sometimes it might just be there and have have no reason and no effect on an individual's belief system. And and sometimes it's actually something that comes after they've committed the violence. So mental illness is extremely complex. And I think sometimes there's a, an incentive when terrorist attacks happen to sort of put blame
1: yeah, absolutely. Try and explain away the problem.
3: Yeah, and with lone actors, one of the fashionable things to do is to talk about mental illness. But it doesn't mean that it's that's the reason an individual has committed an attack.
1: Yeah, of course. And, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in your research coming off the Burke Street attack that happened in Melbourne last week. Yeah. The Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, he's sort of, he's dismissed the mental health angle. You know, he's called it an excuse and he's sort of, he's really urged the Muslim community to be more proactive in helping to unco- uncover sort of potential terrorist plots. Yeah. His dismissal of this mental health angle, what sort of message
3: do you think that statement sends? So this is, it's not uncommon. Yeah. Uh, you either get people, public-facing people saying it's to do with mental illness or you get people saying it's not, it's to do with um, Islam, and particularly with the type of attacks we've seen more recently. And I think those comments on both sides are extremely loaded and it doesn't send a good message at all. It sends a message that, in in the opinion of, of Scott Morrison, it sends the message that we only need to look in one direction to solve these type of attacks. There are so many different people that can help prevent terrorism, um, mental health is just a small facet of that and religious communities are just a very small facet of that, that it, I think trying to boil it down to one of two reasons will not help and it will only aggravate people on both sides.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's tarnishing sort of specific communities with associations of terrorism that, you know, it doesn't diminish the threat and yet it's so often in the aftermath of these sorts of attacks, that's exactly what we see happening.
3: Yes, exactly. It's 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 extremely common you to see someone tarnishing. That's exactly the word they they tarnish a particular group of people, mm. um, and be that a specific religious group or a cultural group or a you know a group of people who suffer from mental illness. It's and it, it boils down to the fact that we still don't know why people commit a terrorist attack. So it comes to clutching at straws. And unfortunately, people who are in positions of power need to be public-facing and they need to make statements on these things. But because researchers haven't been able to identify why, at the moment, it comes down to two excuses. Um, And these excuses aren't backed up with anything. They're just popular excuses.
1: There's been a bit sort of written in the media recently about ASIO at the moment. Apparently, it currently has uh, up to 400 priority cases. So, these are sort of um, individuals who they see as being at high risk of sort of potentially um, committing a terrorist act. And essentially, you know, 400 is far too many for the agency to kind of monitor full time. So, what we sort of start getting into questions here is that, you know, if, if the key here is kind of engaging those marginalized individuals, so those of the 400 who You know, are deemed perhaps more susceptible to being recruited to join Islamist movements or extremist movements in general and carry out attacks. How do we recognize who within this big pool of 400 people, who these specific people are? There are risk
3: assessments that are carried out on on individuals who are um, viewed to be at risk of radicalization or or carrying out an attack. And these, these assessments are carried out by agencies across the world. There are fundamental flaws within the assessments that the assessments themselves they are quite often based on scientific research and the scientific research field isn't well developed so it's not the it's not the flaw in the assessment itself it's the flaw in what the research behind the assessments that okay. will affect their validity and reliability essentially they are pieces that are full of indicators that um, trained professionals ma- monitor these these indicators within individuals and then they come out with a level of risk yeah and this is a way of spreading resources in the most effective way as yeah. possible. Um, so this is, this is one element. And this is not just used in Australia, which it's used worldwide by agencies. It's the best answer we have at the moment because doing nothing is not, is not possible. But I also think you have to look at it, come at it from a different angle. So if you come at, we, we support communities, whatever the community may be, wherever, you support them. So you help people from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And you, the services that are provided to these people and the, the way that you look after the communities that exist in Australia, if you have this, then you will always have people that will invariably still want to go on to commit a terrorist attack and, and become radicalized. But you will have a much more nuanced and holistic approach to looking after community, which actually, at the end of the day, reduces incidences of social problems, health problems, mm. mental health problems. And what you do is if you're reducing those instances, you, in some cases, will inadvertently reduce instances of people wanting to go on to commit terrorist attacks inadvertently without ever knowing or ever needing to predict who the people will be. Okay. And it's, it's, so you you start from the ground up and it's a much more long-term preventive approach. It's, it's basically taking on the public health model, which has been used in disease prevention in the medical field for years and years and years. And if you look at it that way, you will, not vaccinating, but protecting the community from an early stage and helping people all the way through their lives, you're vaccinating them against feeling what they want to feel and, and and go on later in life. And you're helping them without ever knowing that you've stopped terrorism. Yeah. And what that does is it inadvertently down the line reduces the number of people that need to be watched by ASIO or any other agency. Mm. Um, but that's a much more long term I was
1: going to say like <laughs> the problem is that yeah, like sort of these more long term approaches, while there's you know so many people out there advocating yeah. for them and saying that they will be much more effective, yeah. governments just you know they want the sort of the quick fix
3: really and so there's three levels of intervention w- within the public health space, and the first level is the one I've just described, and then you have the second level where you're effectively trying to prevent violence in those you already know at risk and then there's the third level which would essentially be stopping stopping someone so it would be a policing um, intervention so you stop someone so you, you conduct a raid and you arrest people mm-hmm. so you still have the short-term stoppage but you the short-term stoppage of the attack but you, st- you have to implement it at the same time as pushing through this much longer-term plan and unfortunately like you said the actual feasibility of doing that is more difficult yeah um, there are places in the U.S. which are which are doing this and they're focusing on this. And And there are places across the world. It's not just the U.S., but there are programs within the U.S. now that are focusing purely on the public health model. Um, and I think it, it comes down to looking after people within the community. And um, if no one else is going to do it for us, we have to then go in and help ourselves at the moment because we don't have that safety net of having that protection from government agencies or community agencies we have to go in and help each other well emily
1: i really appreciate you just taking the time to to chat with me and talk about just your yeah your incredible
0: research as well
3: it's absolutely no worries it was lovely to speak to you
0: next up jackie speaks with dr isaac Kafir on the latest developments in Brexit and whether as theresa may says the uk is going to make a success of it
4: Hi Isaac, so last week we saw the draft for withdrawal agreement coming out, which was followed by resignations. Can you give us a little recap?
5: So the United Kingdom is supposed to be leaving the European Union in March of 2019, following the referendum uh, over Brexit. The Brits and the Europeans have been back and forth about how to do the divorce bill, essentially, or the divorce structure. So there are a number of uh, key issues. One of which is the Irish border. Uh, so you know we've got the Republic of Ireland, and then we've got what is known as the six counties of Ulster. At the moment, there is no physical borders between the two. So even though when the IRA was Uh, in its heyday committing all sorts of atrocities, it still didn't stop the border from uh, allowing for the flow of goods. So that was one key issue. Another issue is how to deal with uh, Europeans and Brits who live either on the continent or within the United Kingdom, what's going to be their rights, what are going to be their status. There's also been conversation as to how much money the United Kingdom needs to pay the European Union because of the divorce bill. Because the European Union budget, it's worked out uh, over a seven year period Uh, The last negotiation was in 2013, so it's coming up to 2080, so the Brits are leaving a little bit before. Do they owe any money uh, to the European Union? So all of that is part of the negotiation. It's been a lot of uh, serious debates. So eventually they drafted some sort of an understanding, a 548-page document. Have you Uh, read it all yet? uh, I have (laughs) perused some of it. It's it's interesting because it's not a treaty. It's not really... They describe it as an understanding. So one is not exactly sure as to what it actually entails. And it's supposed to help facilitate the the process towards the the divorce between the the UK and Europe.
4: Yeah, so we've seen the reactions from the EU side were actually quite positive towards the draft Mm -hmm. what we hear so far coming from all the capitals all the countries seem to agree that this is a really good deal the scene in the UK is a bit different so we have Theresa May who still really like wants to get this deal through government which she Mm -hmm. has already but now parliament will be the big challenge and a lot of people have come up saying no, we won't support it. I think James rees Mock had his prime minute one afternoon when he said he wants to motion for no confidence. Do you think the government will hold? So like the first, what's the what's the deal with so that? So the
5: first thing to note is that Theresa May is leading a minority government. So she's got 318 members of, um, uh, conservative members uh, in in the House of Parliament, uh, facing 324 who are non-conservative. So she has to rely on the DUP, which is a Northern Ireland Protestant group uh, composed of 10 members. So essentially it's 328 versus 324. Uh, So her government is really hanging by, uh, by a thread. Now, the DUP is very much against what has been described as the backstop. So the backstop goes back to December of 2017. There was an agreement between the UK and, um, and Europe about how to deal with the Irish problem as it it comes to be known, because the DUP being um, um, unionists, they don't want to have any division between Northern Ireland and the mainland, whereas the backstop seems to suggest some sort of a separation. So all the goods who will be coming to Northern Ireland from the Republic will be still under EU regulation, whereas the rest of the of the mainland, of the UK, will be outside of the European Union. So that creates a two-tier system. Because
4: the UK had agreed that... Northern Ireland will never be treated any differently to the UK. That's rest right. Country,
5: right. That's right. So again, so you know, the, the whole uh, a number of the issues with Brexit is that sometimes aspiration and geopolitical considerations just don't don't match, and also we've got realities on the ground. You know, so all of a sudden to construct a physical border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, I mean, that's an expensive, complicated undertaking. Uh, if you actually look, I mean, there's it, it's effectively it's a road. Uh, that you could just drive across. So, you know, if if you jump from one side to the other, you're essentially in two different countries. So they haven't really figured out how to do this. Now, the situation that Theresa May is facing is that she is leading an incredibly fragmented conservative party. So you do have, yes, the re they are the hardcore Brexiteers, there's maybe 30 to 40 of those, and they want a hard Brexit, i.e. no deal with the European Union, they believe that they can find a technological solution to the Irish border problem, even though there is no technology that could pretty much facilitate that, um, so that's one issue. Secondly, they also want, um, sort of, you know, they believe that Britain can become a global entity again. Against them, you also have about 30 or 40 Tory members who are pro-Remain. They voted for Remain. They advocate for Remain. So first of all, how do you match those two opposite sides? On top of that, you've got in between the Conservative Party, individuals who really can go either way. So she has to lead these three groups within her own party, and she's struggling because you've got... Do, you know ideologues on one side and ideologues on the other side and when you you have these types of zealots it becomes very difficult to uh, get a negotiation
4: yeah what i found actually mind gobbling when i was looking at some quotes and what people involved in the whole brexit negotiation yeah. have said from the uk side that is how immense the lack of knowledge yes among these people is. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So Dominic Reb, who was the Brexit secretary, said he hadn't quite understood how heavily the trade actually relied on the Dover-Calais crossing. And then what I found most surprising was a Tory MP, her name is Nadine Doris, she complained that the suggested deal, so the withdrawal agreement that was um, proposed last week, would leave the UK without voice, votes, members of European parliaments or commissioner what did he expect brexit means
5: yes so i mean it's it's been quite surprising to um, to see the lack of understanding as to the complex nature of britain's relationship with europe so you know if you just take trade agreements uh, normally it takes between 6 to 7 years to negotiate a trade re- agreement uh, the similar example that we have is the european union's uh, negotiation with canada of a free trade that took seven years, and it was and it was almost broke brought to a stop by a small canton in Belgium who refused yeah. to support the deal. These are incredibly complex negotiations. Trade nowadays, especially between the UK and Europe. It, it's interconnected. You know, it's very difficult to see where one starts and the other one begins. Uh, you know, for 40 years, the UK didn't have to worry about traffic control, airplane movement, uh, going to Costa del Sol, you know, for, for for holidays. All of those were absolutely simple things that people took for granted. And I think what those quotes indicate is lack of understanding as to how interconnected Britain and Europe are. And I think now, as you're beginning to unravel it, people get to appreciate the challenge. Again, another issue that the Brits are going to have to deal with is uh, migration, in terms of uh, seasonal migrations to collect their fruit and vegetables, you know? So there's already a potato shortage when it comes to actually picking up their potatoes. These are issues that need to be addressed, but again, some of the folks are unaware as to how complicated it is.
4: So we now have a new Brexit secretary. Yes. Stephen Barclay, yes. he was for, former secretary in our health and finance ministries, and he's a Emmet supporter of Theresa yeah. May. But also, his um, abilities to actually design the whole mm. Brexit process have been cut. So, with every Brexit secretary, mm. their tasks and abilities to influence the whole thing have been shortened. Mm. So, what do you think? will be his approach
5: to the whole thing. It's unclear as to how he's going to approach it, primarily because the Brits are running out of time. I would suggest that the Europeans have done a better job at preparing for a no Brexit than the Brits have. So, you know, we already know that, for example, in the port of Rotterdam, they've hired more people to uh, to deal with the backlog of containers. You know, at the moment, you know, trucks go easily from the European U- Union to, Br- to Britain and vice versa. The Brit's response to that has been to turn the uh, into a massive car park. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the the backstop, you know. The, so all of those things haven't really been thought through. What about, again, And I go back to air travel. At the moment, you know, if you want to fly, let's say, from the UK to Australia, you have to fly over Europe. But if there is no agreement, how could the European Union, in good conscience, allow a British aeroplane, who hasn't maybe been serviced up to European standards, to fly over it just because it was done forty for 40 years without any difficulties doesn't mean that it can be so you know there's legal agreements in everything and i know that people you know tend to have a bad opinion of lawyers but legal systems tend to structure our society we want to make sure that we have health and safety regulations all of these are, are parts and parcels and by not having agreed standards that's where it gets a little bit tricky
4: do you think there will be an agreement by march 2019
5: I am incredibly skeptical that an agreement could be reached because of the fractious nature of the Conservative Party. It seems very hard to imagine that Theresa May can negotiate this deal through Parliament, where you have essentially members of the Labour Party not exactly in favour of it, you have Conservatives who are not in favour, but you also have individuals who are in favour. We can also talk a little bit about the momentum for a second referendum, which is now also building up. There are some logistical difficulties with that, within that because we just don't have enough time to structure one. So what might happen in March is that the Brits might come to the census a little bit, let's say around January, maybe February, and request an extension. And this is also part of this new agreement of getting another 21 months. An extension might provide for enough time to run a second referendum. And by all indication, that might reverse the 2016 referendum.
4: Well, Isaac, thank you so much. We will have the European Council meeting this Sunday, so we'll see how it all develops, and I'm sure we will be talking about this at least until next year, March of 2019. for sure. Thank
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back in two weeks.